Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, brought to you by the Sportsman Channel. All hunting, all fishing, all the time. Contact your local network provider and ask about the Sportsman Channel today. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Christian Berg. This is editor Christian Berg, and you're listening to another episode of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We're joined today by field editor Bill Winky. Uh, Bill, appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here, happy to join you. You know, Bill, I think when most of uh, people think of you, they think of white-tailed deer hunting, obviously, and, and certainly you are uh, uh, a real white-tailed guru here for the magazine, but you also write our Center Shots column, which is uh, focuses on gear tuning, and you just recently uh, did this book for us called Setting Up the Perfect Hunting Bow. I was really impressed with the thoroughness of this book, and uh, we've got a lot of good feedback on this. Uh, tell me a little bit about the project and uh, what inspired you to tackle this. Well, the, uh, my background is actually in mechanical engineering, so the technical parts of, of setting up and tuning a bow uh, came pretty easy to me. Uh, when I did interviews with the uh, representatives from the bow companies, a lot of times I would talk to their engineers, and we could go into depth on some of the issues that uh, we had maybe a common foundation. Uh, at least I could understand some of the things they were talking about. So that, that sort of is, is the background Forward, I tried to take a little bit more of a in-depth look at things, and then work it down to uh, a, a level that even somebody who didn't have any technical background or even any true mechanical background of any kind uh, could still apply that information. So, hopefully, you know, we hit that goal because that's what I set out to do with the book was uh, have it be applicable to guys who already knew quite a bit about bows but also applicable to uh, people who had never even picked up an Allen wrench before. Absolutely. I mean, for you know, for those who haven't seen the book, it's 201 pages, and uh, it's full color. There's a lot of photographs, a lot of illustrations and charts in here, and, and I think you did an excellent job of you know, kind of laying everything out in pretty simple terms. Um, and like you said, for somebody who doesn't necessarily know uh, how to work on a bow, or maybe they feel a little bit intimidated because they haven't done anything, you know, before, and they've pretty much relied on the pro shop. I mean, this is a, I think, a wonderful resource for people to have on their shelf, and and you really cover everything from uh, A to Z, you know, from from a basic understanding of how the bow works and selecting, you know, the right bow and and accessories for you to actually setting it up and and uh, tweaking things to work out any uh, kinks that you might encounter along the way. Yeah, and I think the, you know, I think it's important. You kind of touched on something there about not having to rely on the pro shops. Um, you know, I love pro shops, and they're an important part of our of the archery industry. But uh, if people get to rely on too heavily on the on the technician at the archery shop, they're going to have stuff that creeps up on them that they're not going to notice. Uh, things that are going to rob their accuracy or the reliability of the bow. Uh, without them even realizing it, you know, short of, you know, going in for a physical exam, you know, every six months, uh, you know, this is the best thing they can do is really start to understand how things work so they can head off problems uh, before they come up and, and cost them a shot at a big deer or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. That that kind of leads into, you know, the next question I had for you, which is, um, you know, as we sit here 
today and talk, it's early September, and uh, if a hunting season hasn't started uh, where the listeners are, it's surely just around the corner, probably anywhere from one to three weeks before the whitetail seasons uh, will be open across the nation. What are some of the you know, checklists and things that you'd encourage people to look at with their rigs and, uh, you know, common issues that they might need to address before they climb into a tree stand this fall? Well, the first thing I would look for, if you're pulling a bow out of storage, uh, make sure that nothing's stretched. Uh, that's one of the areas of reliability of a bow that, that gets uh, probably underestimated, uh, the importance of making sure that nothing's stretched. And by that, I mean the string and the harnesses, because anything that stretches there in storage is going to affect, uh, in some cases, the arrow flight, but you know, almost certainly the impact point of the arrow. Uh, so just kind of take a look. I, I typically, in, in the book, we go into some detail about how to mark a bow to, to make sure you know that you, you get it back in the same place. Um, without going into too much detail there, uh, just in general, uh, bear in mind that things may have stretched. Um, the other thing I look at whenever somebody hands me a bow and says, what do you think? First thing I look at is the serving on the string uh, because a lot of guys, they have an older setup. And before people started using really well-made uh, bow strings, the servings would slip a lot. And you'd start to see them loosening up and you'd see separation between the serving strands uh, as they're wrapped around the bow string. And that's just a ticking time bomb that uh, at some point that's going to either you know continue to move where the knocking point moves up typically, um, or you know in some cases I've seen the serving you know completely break and fail and and uh, that's just an area that I would definitely look at. Those are the most sensitive parts of a bow really is is the string and harnesses. Most everything else is made out of some kind of rigid material and it's not likely to change. Uh, but you want to take a really close look at that. And, of course, there's, you know, a lot of tuning issues, too, for somebody maybe who who doesn't have uh, that kind of familiarity. Right. Now, if you haven't been shooting throughout the summer, and like you said, you might be taking a bow uh, more or less, you know, out of the case or off the hook for the first time in several months, um, is there any likelihood other than string, string stretch uh, being a possibility that you're really going to need to tweak anything else on your, on your setup? Well, it kind of goes back to the stretch again, of course, but the, if the string does stretch, a lot of times the peep sight doesn't come back the way that it did before. Um, so what that's going to require is that you have to get the bow into a uh, bow press and, and put a few twists in the string probably to get that peep so it's coming back correctly, uh, so it's opening up to your eye. And even if you use the rubber tubing, the surgical tubing, I still would prefer for that to be a backup uh, if I'm setting up a bow for somebody, I don't want it to come back where the peep is at a 90-degree angle to their eye and then rely 100% on that rubber tubing just to square it because uh, that just puts too much, um, gives too much power to one little, you know, breakable piece of the of the equation. Um, I still want that peep to come back square, and the surgical tubing is just your insurance, you know, in, in case something changes over time. Uh, but uh, that's an area... And obviously, you know, shooting form is a little bit rusty. And, and uh, what I see, the biggest thing that I see people doing when they haven't shot for a while is they don't hold their follow-through uh, long enough. Mm-hmm. They're moving they're moving before the arrow even leaves the bow. They don't realize it, but the, they are. And the easiest way to fix that is to hold 
your position, hold your aim until the arrow actually hits the target. If you get into that habit, um, then you'll never have a problem with movement creeping into the shot. Uh, as people think, you know, they pull the trigger if they're shooting a release aid, then they snap their hand closed, and a whole bunch of stuff all happens at once, and that's going to hurt you as far as accuracy. You need to focus on the spot you're trying to hit, squeeze the trigger, and then hold that focus and hold that, that physical position, you know, with your bow arm pointing at that spot until the arrow hits. And that's the number one shooting tip that I can offer the, the average uh, guy that's getting his bow out and getting ready to, to hit the trees is make sure you hold your follow-through. Um, that'll cover up a bunch of other sins. Yeah, and, and also I think that kind of ties directly into the temptation that I think we all experience to some degree uh, when we start shooting again after a long layoff and things aren't just right. Our immediate, uh, uh, maybe in our pride, you know, we want to blame the equipment and think that we need to start loosening things and fiddling. And uh, perhaps what we really need to do is pay a little bit more attention to our form and think that chances are if that bow's been sitting in a case for six months, not a whole lot has changed with that. So it, it must be our problem. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, when, I'm, when I'm sighting in a bow or, you know, getting back up to speed again, because I don't shoot 12 months out of the year, uh, you know, it's just, I get busy and I don't, I just don't, you know, I'm not out there shooting every single day. Um, so I have layoffs. And when I come back from a layoff, uh, I never assume that it's the bow. Uh, I'll wait. I may shoot for five days and my groups are high left all five days before I finally say, well, I better move the sight pin. Uh, I would rather, you know, have the, have the trend be confirmed, you know, with multiple sessions at the range before I automatically assume it's the bow because your your form is going to evolve and get back into shape. And when your form gets back into shape, then a lot of times the, the arrow starts falling back into the bullseye. So um, you're right about that. Don't don't jump to the conclusion that it's the bow right away. Take a few days of, of consistent practice before you make any changes to the gear. And, and what about, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to practice, uh, I know obviously ideally you know you'd you'd have a regular shooting regimen throughout the summer and and build up those muscles um what if you haven't been doing that and you've got somebody now that just has maybe two or three weeks before the season and they they feel a sudden sense of urgency about uh getting back into form how much do you recommend people practice uh, how many days per week how many arrows per session uh should they be uh shooting what i do uh and like I said, I go through that myself. My uh, my first week back from a layoff is just muscle tone. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm trying to maintain form, but it's not, I don't get, you know, real uh, uh, bent out of shape if I'm not hitting right where I want to. What I'm really trying to do is get the reps in, get the muscles built back up again so that I can, draw the bowl and hold it at full draw for the necessary amount of time without any kind of muscle strain. Um, and that's, I would say that's the first week, you know, and, and probably there you're looking at maybe about 30 arrows a day. Uh, the other thing I do too during that week is uh, I'll leave the bow sitting around the house and, uh, or in my case, the office. And, and if I'm not, you know, I just pick it up and draw it back, you know, four or five times and then set it down and just kind of treat it as an exercise tool. And then that way, during that week, typically I can get the strength back to where I was at 
about the time that I stopped shooting uh, in my prior, you know, when I took that time off. So that's, uh, I wouldn't get too, too worried about where you're hitting during that first week. I would just focus on, you know, doing, you know, trying to do the best you can with your form, but get that strength up. As soon as you got the strength up, then you need to make that shift over where you really start to analyze where the arrows are hitting and, and really go to work on your, on your technique to get it right back where it needs to be as well. And then in that, once you've gotten past that first week and you're sort of in the, uh, you're back up to speed, then how regularly uh, do you typically uh, practice and shoot? What I like to do then, uh, because my office is right next to my range, which is really convenient, you know, I know it's not going to work for everybody, but I like to shoot multiple times during a day with, with a limited number of arrows. Uh, because the, the, the other thing that I see people do is they try to shoot too many arrows and they go through that quiver really fast. Then they go get the arrows and they go through the quiver fast again. And that's, that's really not helping you as a hunter. That might be helping you to build strength, but it's not helping with the habits that are going to carry over into the hunting season. Uh, you have to treat every single shot as if it's the only one you're going to take that day, uh, whether you're practicing or obviously if you're in a tree stand or you know sneaking around in the sagebrush, um, that, that may be the only shot you get to take. And uh, so I'll exaggerate that. Sometimes I'll go out, step out of the office, and shoot one arrow, and then I'll go back in my office again. And that's where you have to form those good habits, and you don't form the good habits by shooting tons and tons of arrows. You form the good habits by putting everything you've got into every single shot. Uh, so by that point, you know, if you're shooting 30 to 40 arrows a day or whatever it was uh, during the strength-building time, you might still shoot 30 to 40 arrows or 20 to 30 arrows, but then you're going to really focus on each one of those shots. Uh, take the necessary time, um, especially on the first shot when you go into a new practice session, because uh, that, that is what you're doing when you're hunting is you're going in there cold. You know, you don't get a chance to work your way up to it and loosen up. Um, you know, you, you got to make that first one count. So start paying a lot more attention to where that first arrow hits when you go into a, a new practice session. Right. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I think that's great advice because, you know, how many times, uh, if we're, you know, sort of uh, careless about it, you know, do we start a practice session and, you know, let's say we're shooting from 30 yards and, you know, your first shot is two inches low and two inches left. And of course you can put the second, third and fourth shots, you know, right into the heart, but, uh, the, the second, third and fourth shots weren't going to come out of the tree stand, you know, cause the deer was already either missed or, or wounded after the first one. So right. uh, I definitely think there's something to be said for that mindset. Well, there's, there's a cool quote. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in, in all of archery came from Jim Doherty. And, uh, he said, I'm not interested in five arrow groups. I'm only interested in one arrow groups. And, uh, I thought that was pretty you know, it, it kind of cuts right through all the BS. Uh, all that matters is the first arrow and when you're in the tree or in the field. So um, as you're practicing, you need to build those habits where that first arrow is the most important one. In fact, what I'll do sometimes is, is I'll shoot that first arrow and then I'll do things for a few minutes, you know, a couple of minutes to get my, you know, you have muscle memory and I want the muscle memory to go away. Uh, that's kind of a thing that golfers will do. If you'll watch some of the golfers on the range, um, you know, the better golfers will hit one shot and then they'll talk to somebody for a little while. They'll go back and hit another one. They're trying to let that muscle memory go away so that they're, they're making first shots all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, I think it's, it's so key, uh, once you get past that strength building stage and you get into that fine tuning your technique, uh, just don't shoot a whole bunch of arrows, just boom, 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 because you're not going to gain anything from that. 
In fact, it might actually reinforce bad habits, um, which is not going to help you one bit. Another aspect of shooting that I want to touch on briefly is the whole idea of maximum effective range. That's a term that, you know, might not mean a whole lot to some people, but we throw it around in the, in the magazine quite a bit. I see it show up in, in columns and feature articles regularly. And of course, that's the, you know, I guess every archer would have to define that as the maximum range at which he or she feels comfortable, you know, making a lethal shot, you know, 10 out of 10 times. Um, how would you recommend people sort of determine their maximum effective range heading into the hunting season? And do you have any absolute guidelines that you offer people, uh, you know, on an ethical basis, regardless of how accurate you might be in a range type setting? Well, the, yeah, there's, there's a couple ways to look at that. And I actually did a study one time as a mathematical study, but there was, I didn't have any other means to do this study available to me, but um, I found some data that they had, uh, uh, military had done some testing to determine how closely people could estimate distance. And uh, they determined that somebody who was skilled at it, uh, who had practiced, you know, estimating distance, you know, 13 to 15% error uh, was, you know, pretty good. And uh, so I factored that in and I ran all the numbers and came up with, you know, if you've got this guy that's shooting a, a bow that, that's at this speed, and he can hold, you know, let's say a, a four-inch group at at uh, 20 yards, which with broadheads, you know, everybody thinks they can hold a two-inch group, but truly, you know, a four-inch group at 20 yards, broadheads isn't too bad. Um, so I factored all that stuff in and tried to figure out, you know, mathematically what the person's maximum range would be based on the variable that they may not have judged the distance correctly, you know, within 15%. Well, it was like 29 yards. <laughs> it was just nowhere. Uh, so... That showed me two things, and then if you had it so that they could hit an aspirin, you know, so their their you know broadhead groups were like you know zero, mm-hmm. then it was like thirty three yards. Um, you know, it wasn't it didn't grow that much. So what that told me was you have to have a range finder if you're going to shoot past thirty yards. I don't care who you are. Um, the military couldn't get their men to do it better than you know thirteen to fourteen, fifteen percent. You know, who who do we think we are? Unless we're shooting three D tournaments every single day. Um, you know, you, if you're going to shoot past 30 yards um, and, you're, and you're not shooting a 300-foot-per-second arrow, you know, let's say you're shooting a 250, 260-foot-per-second arrow, you need to have actu- accurate range information, uh, and that's just so critical. A lot of times it's not the execution of the shot that's going to get you in trouble. It's the, it's the pin that you use. Uh, so, I mean, that's my first advice is if you're going to shoot past 30, I don't care what equipment you're holding, you pretty much need... You know, a reference point on the ground that you can say, well, he walked past that tree, so I know he's 32 or whatever. Uh, or you need to range the animal directly or the opening that he's going to walk into. Uh, and then after that, it just comes down to your ability to make shots under hunting conditions. And it's just so different. Um, I would take at least 10% off what you can do on the range. You know, if you can hold a you know five-inch group at 50 yards on the range, um, you know, that you're not going to, there's totally different conditions. Um, you're dealing with different body angles. Um, you can mm-hmm. be totally awkward, you know, and you're dealing with adrenaline. Um, it's, it's, uh, you have to have killed an awful lot of animals before you're shooting as effectively at game as what you are in your yard. So you want to knock it back. Um, 
you know, maybe 10% isn't even enough for a lot of people, but uh, it's just kind of a standard. You know, if you really feel like you can pull it off at 50, then you probably better not shoot past 45, 40 yards that game. Well, and, and it's interesting to note and, and possibly, I think, an encouragement for, for listeners is that, you know, even yourself, you know, you mentioned the adrenaline and, you know, the excitement, uh, buck fever, if you will. That's not something you, you ever completely eliminate. And I know from editing your columns that you make, uh, I'm, I'm certain of it, you make certain concessions uh, to your maximum effective range in a tree stand probably than you, uh, as opposed to what you'd feel comfortable with uh, certainly shooting uh, on the target range, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I've shot a lot of deer, too. We've we shoot a lot of does, uh, part of the management that we do, and and uh, I get, gosh, some years, you know, I get a dozens, you know, depending on where all I hunt and stuff, uh, I'll kill dozens of deer, and, and uh, you know, even then, there's still no such thing as autopilot. Every time the green light goes on, there's a flush of adrenaline, uh, and that's what makes makes the sport what it is. Uh, so, no, there's, there's no such thing as uh, a, a shot in the field that's as comfortable and 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 I don't know what you want to say, just easy to execute as one that you're going to have in your backyard. So uh, just keep that in mind. I mean, guys, I don't care who you are. You know, maybe Randy Almer can do it, uh, but uh, I don't think he'd even admit that he could. Uh, I think that everybody is impacted by the tendencies that you have when you're at full draw and your pin is settling on a nice deer mm-hmm. or elk or whatever. Uh, you're, you're always going to fight some kind of tendency that you don't have on the range. Yeah, and if that ever goes away, then uh, that's the day that we all stop bow hunting, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the fun of it, or you know, that's that's why we're there. I mean, it's that's that's the cool part. Last thing I, and then we'll move on to talking some hunting here. Last thing I wanted to discuss on the uh, equipment issue is you hear an awful lot. Um, you, I'm sure you've mentioned it. I know. Uh, Randy has and and some of our other writers it's this idea of uh you know the uh the loose screw you know the the magical loose screw that's going to suddenly cost us at the moment of truth how common is that and uh you know I I know that a lot of people like to use some Loctite how much do you do that and do you really uh get paranoid about that if you weren't to Loctite your your equipment before the season well I've had uh occasions believe it or not I know one for sure in particular and there's probably been others uh that i'm just not remembering because i'm getting old enough and my memory's starting to fail me but there's been uh there have been occasions where my equipment has cost me big animals um, and there's no doubt about it and and usually it happens because stuff gets bumped you got to remember we're raising and lowering a, a bow you know through barbed wire fences and brush and tree branches and heck i remember one time i got my bow snagged on a barbed wire fence and I didn't feel like climbing all the way down in the dark to get it out, so I just bounced it at the end of my rope until it finally came loose. Well, you know, what else happened? Uh, well, anyway, I had a rest move on me one time that I didn't realize, and, and uh, that cost me uh, a really nice deer in Illinois. Uh, so there's, you definitely have to pay a close attention to that, and, and my biggest thing is just to keep stuff really simple and go really rugged. Uh, it'd probably be different if I was hunting antelope where i was going to you know i was conditioned to take a 70 yard shot uh that's not the primary type of hunting that i do i mean most of my shots are 40 yards and under um so i don't need equipment that's geared for ultra precision you know like target type equipment 
um, just the really rugged stuff, uh, just, you know, bulletproof. And that's, I look at my accessories totally from the standpoint of, is it bulletproof? If I hand it to a five-year-old boy and let him play with it for an hour, is it going to be ruined? <laughs> right. You and, know, and, and, and are you a Loctite guy, Bill? Do you I, actually... I mean, I'm, I'm not. I know Randy is. Uh, I just don't. I mean, I just tighten everything up, and it doesn't seem like it moves. And I've, I've got bows that I've set up and hunted with for many, many years uh, that have never moved. But then again, it comes down to I don't have a lot of little small screws on any of that stuff. You know, I mean, everything is, like I said, it's bulletproof. It's big screws, you know, big retainers, this, you know, solid stuff where you don't have, you know, a lot of vibration doing any kind of damage to rattle things loose. Um, and that's, I'm probably more paranoid about my string than I am about anything else. You know, after a while, I just, this stuff just doesn't move and it's just bulletproof. And, and I, I take steps, everybody takes steps, you know, to make sure that things aren't going to come loose. You know, it's just, uh, I just have never gone to Loctite and gotcha. anything yet. Well, let's uh, let's jump over to the hunting side of things now. Uh, for folks who might not know, you're a you're an Iowa guy, and you're out there in in God's country, and certainly some of the best uh, whitetail habitat uh, anywhere on God's green earth. Uh, when does the season start up for you, Bill? And uh, I'm sure you are very eager to to start the season's hunt. Yeah, uh, when I used to travel a lot, which I don't, I don't travel as much as I used to because we've got a young family and it's just nice to be around. Uh, and we've got enough land here that I can, I can be shooting does and, and you know, helping with the management uh, that way without having to travel a lot. But um, I used to start typically first part of September uh, going out west. Uh, now my season usually starts mid-September, somewhere around in there, you know, making a trip down to Missouri for their opener. Um, that sort of thing, you know, just whatever's within driving distance where I can be back in my own bed at night. Uh, and that'll change again once the kids are, are gone. I'm sure I'll, I'll be, you know, hitting the highway uh, more like I used to. But so really I'm probably on the same schedule that a lot of the whitetail readers are, are on. And that's, uh, you know, key in for I mean, everything is either the first couple of days of the season or the end of October. Those are kind of my key times. I mean, I want to be out there for for a few days, maybe catch a few bucks on, on feeding patterns early. Uh, then I've got things that I have to do in the office. Uh, like everybody else, I've got to make a living. So I don't really, I don't really feel like it's time well spent generally, uh, until about the 25th of October. That's usually when I set everything aside, uh, set all my work aside and, and hopefully I don't have anything that's still do at Peterson's bow hunting at that time, because it's probably going to be January before you see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be tracking you down. You, you figure you figure I'm two months late most of the time anyway. So what's the difference? Um, but uh, usually, like the 25th of October, things really start to break loose here, uh, and throughout the Midwest for sure, and even you know many parts of of the rest of the country. Uh, you know, you know what you're saying right now. It makes me think of a question that I'd like to ask, and that is this. Um, so many uh, of our so-called experts recommend that you'd get um, all your stands hung and your trails trimmed and, uh, you know, basically anything that you'd have to do within your hunting area to be ready for the season. To get that done even as early as, you know, the end of last winter or, or this past spring. But uh, that's probably not realistic 
for a lot of guys. And certainly uh, if they're hunting on public land or, or maybe some private ground that they just don't get to all that often, I, if you're only going to be hunting a, a two or three days at the beginning of the season and you're essentially going to rest that property for a, about a month or so before you really start to ramp up your hunting again, is it is it the end of the world if guys have to get in there, you know, now just a few weeks before the season? And what what kind of advice would you offer guys that might have to get in and hang a stand or, or trim a trail, um, even though it might not be quite the way you'd do it? Well, the I mean that's basically the way I do it. The uh, I've got certain stands that are killers that we've fine tuned over the years, and those are pretty much the only ones that are that are in place ahead of time. Uh, and then everything else is more of an adjustment. It's sort of like, well, we saw some good deer this summer using this part of the of this food plot. They're coming in over here now. You know, I need to adjust to that. Um, so, I mean, we do we do a lot of adjusting, uh, trying new stuff. Uh, so I, I put up a lot of stands during the season. And uh, the approach that I take, uh, I don't... I don't worry about it, to be honest with you, but I take a totally different approach than what maybe some people might think makes sense. Um, I totally blow the deer out. Um, there's there's two ways you can move a deer off. One, you can sneak up and scare him at close range, or you can give him all the warning in the world, and he's gone well before you get there. And that's totally the way that I prefer to do it, uh, because they're not really afraid of farmers on big equipment. They're not afraid of guys running chainsaws. You know, They're not afraid of, of big disturbances. It's that little surprise that happens right in, in their bedroom at 25 yards away when you're sneaking in there trying to put a stand up. Uh, that's what they respond to. Uh, so what I'll do is, if I can, I'll take a tractor or a truck or whatever, drive right up as close to the spot as I can get. Uh, th- these are for morning stands now where mm-hmm. you know, I just don't have the opportunity of putting it up you know, as I hunt it. Um, I'll just drive as close as I can drive. You know, if, if there's a trail through the woods, I'm going to drive on that trail. I'm going to get out, I'm going to slam the doors, I'm going to start a chainsaw, uh, might lop off an old junky tree someplace that, you know, just for the good of, of making noise. Uh, if there's a fence there, I might twang some wires. If i got a buddy with me, I might yell at him, hey, you know, come over here. That that kind of stuff, it doesn't really scare them. Um, they move off, and they, they, they encounter enough human activity. They know how to categorize it. Mm-hmm. And they know what is danger and, and what is normal human activity. Um, we try to give them normal human activity when we have to invade their space. I mean, the ideal thing, of course, is don't go near it until the day you're in there with your bow, and then they come by and you shoot them. Uh, but you know, like you said, that's not always realistic. Uh, so if we're going to invade, uh, we're going to do it. So you're going to be the bull. You're going to be the bull in the china shop. Yeah, until the day I come to hunt. I'm not going to do it. Obviously, the morning I sneak in to hunt it, but. Uh, when I'm in there setting it up, uh, I run chainsaws and talk, and, you know, we they're used to that stuff. You know, guys are always out, you know, doing something with farm equipment and chainsaws, and, you know, if you're in a total wilderness area, you know, maybe that's going to bring out a bunch of, you know, a, a bunch of caution or, or whatever in the in the deer. Uh, but most places where people hunt deer, I mean, you know, throughout the Midwest for sure, in many places of the country, they have to encounter human activity regularly. Uh, just make sure that the type of activity that you're presenting them with is something that they perceive as non-threatening, because uh, they're going to know you were there, whether you snuck in or not. The only way they're not is if you if you're going in on a creek, you're setting the stand right on the edge of the creek, you're dropping back in the creek and sneaking back out. I mean, something like that I might try to do without making any noise. But uh, 
otherwise, I mean, uh, if you're going into the edge of a bedding area or something like that where they're going to know you were there, uh, might as well have them think that it was just a random, you know, human activity sort of a thing. Um, then also this is going to sound kind of weird too, but I'll spread the disturbance out a little bit. Um, you know, I won't just walk straight to the tree, you know, and have everything happen right around that tree. You know, I might cut a tree down over here, you know, and just have it lay there, you know, if, if I have permission to do that and, uh-huh. and uh, right. you know, I'm able to distinguish junky trees from, you know, from quality trees. Um, I try to actually make it look like it was more of a random thing where all of the, you know, all the disturbance didn't focus right on one tree. Um, right. So that well, way when you cut shooting lanes and whatever, they're going to hit a, an area that's maybe, you know, 100 yards long where they're they're smelling these disturbance odors and, and uh, you know, sense in that where rather than just being one little isolated spot. Gotcha. Well, it's, it's certainly an interesting theory, Bill, and uh, of course we can't know exactly how the deer interpret all this, but uh, the results uh, sort of speak for themselves, and you've certainly uh, tagged more than your fair share of uh, big bucks, so I'll have to... Uh, Give some credence to to that uh, philosophy of uh, stand placement. Well, the, it's it's more than a theory. The uh, um, I mean, you can see it if you want to go follow around a guy that's got a bulldozer sometime. Oh, and, sure, or a combine for that matter. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, they go through. Even you know, I've seen it where we cut trees. You know, where we do a commercial timber harvest. We have guys in there running chainsaws all day long, dropping trees, making as much noise as it's possible to make. You come back the next day, and you'll see you know, quite a few deer tracks right in the areas where they were working. Um, that's not a, uh, uh, they, they don't perceive it as, as a threat. Um, so there's, you just have to be careful, uh, on the stuff where you're sneaking. Uh, that's, they, they seem to, they don't like that stuff. Uh, they don't like being surprised at close range. Uh, so if you're going to go into an area that's sensitive, give them plenty of warning, uh, get them out of there ahead of time, and then they're going to come creeping back to try to figure out what happened, and they're going to go, oh, it's just some guy cutting trees, you know, whatever. Sure, uh, so. sure. Let's uh, let's sort of head into the, the final segment of the show here, and I thought what we might do, what, what might be kind of fun, is to um, give you an opportunity to weigh in on some of your own uh, rut hunting strategies that you shared uh, uh, for folks who... Uh, are interested uh, if you if you pick up a copy of the December magazine Bill has an article in there uh, basically uh, we're calling rut revelations and it's his top 10 rut hunting strategies and I thought we'd maybe just kind of hammer through these in a rapid rapid fire style and have you give a little bit of your insight to folks on these uh, methods that you've used to find success over the years um, number one that you offered is to hunt does. You hear that an awful lot, you know. If you wanna, if you wanna shoot a buck, hunt the does. Uh, what do you say about that? Yeah, because that's what they're doing. Um, so it makes sense if you're trying to cross paths. Excuse me. If you're trying to cross paths with a nice buck, um, you might as well be trying to do the same thing that he's trying to do. Um, he's looking for does, and they do a lot of just actually. Uh, physically looking for does. Everybody thinks that they walk around, you know, scent checking all these things, and I'm sure they do that too, but they also spend quite a bit of time out there just trying to find them, uh, you know, physically walking around looking for them. And um, So if you're in areas where there's quite a few does, whether it's a place where the does bed in the mornings uh, when they come in from the fields, or if it's an area where the does feed in the evenings, uh, getting near those locations uh, without getting busted by the does 
which is a good challenge. But that's where you're going to find the bucks because they're going to be in there looking for those does as well. So um, that's what that's all about. And, and I think it's just good basic advice for the rut. I mean, if you're trying to boil it down to just simple things that you can really believe in, um, that's a simple strategy where you don't have to worry about you know, a whole bunch of complex thinking. Um, you know, Try to hunt as close to the does as you can without messing it up, and you're probably going to have your share of bucks come by. Gotcha. Number two was hunt bottlenecks for the cruisers. That kind of right. sounds like it ties in a little bit with the whole hunt the doe thing. Yeah, because what happens is they'll go from one area. Like, let's say, let's pick a morning scenario uh, where maybe you're in an area that has three pretty well-defined bedding areas. You know, maybe they're points or ridge tops or they're you know, thickets or there's some place where you say, you know, those bed in these areas quite a bit. Um, there's probably going to be some kind of a funnel between those areas that's going to concentrate moving bucks, whether it's a creek crossing, uh, maybe they got to go around a ditch, or maybe it's just a fence line, you know, a brushy fence line that connects two little small woodlots. Whatever it is, when he's going from one to the other, uh, those are the kind of places where you can narrow them down, uh, get them a little bit closer. So mm-hmm. but all you're trying to do is play the odds, and, and if you can get you know, someplace that narrows them down, then obviously it's going to bring more within bow range. Right, right. Yeah, your, your number three topic I thought was pretty interesting, hunt scrape lines. And this is a, the whole issue with scrapes, it seems like there's a million and one philosophies out there on uh, what they mean or don't mean and how useful they are or aren't for hunting. And I, I think years ago, uh, when when people first started to pay attention to scrapes, you know, all of a sudden lots and lots of guys started sitting on scrapes and uh, then maybe most of them didn't end up killing a whole lot, and so then there was a big move perhaps away from that, and, and now maybe people are taking a fresh look at that. What's your philosophy on scrapes, and, and why would you recommend somebody to hunt on a scrape line? Well, that sounds pretty similar to my own education or, or evolution on scrapes. The uh, uh, I was kind of coming up through the ranks at the time when everybody was first discovering them, and um, so I spent a lot of time hunting on them, and they just never worked. Uh, for the most part. And uh, the problem with, with hunting scrapes is most people hunt them at the time when the bucks have already become more of searchers. You know, we were talking a little bit about earlier about how they actually go out and physically look for does. Um, prior to that, though, what you've got is you've got bucks that have got testosterone levels that are increasing, let's say, all through October. Um, and they're, they're getting, you know, they're ready for the rut, you know, well before the does are. Uh, so, but they're traveling now. I mean, they're starting to move, let's say, by October 15th. They're really starting to get on their feet a little bit more. And by the 25th, like I said, they're they're moving enough during daylight that it starts to really make sense to be out there. Um, what they're doing, though, is, is they're not, they haven't really changed into what I'll call like this random searching type pattern where they just go, you know, hither and yon. Mm-hmm. They're still kind of hanging around their, their normal home range, uh, but they're just covering a little bit more ground. Well, the scrapes aren't anything magical, really. They're not really, in my mind at least, they're not really checking those scrapes. The scrapes are just appearing along their travel routes. Um, so, I mean, they stop and, you know, they're all kind of ornery and, you know, rutted up and they stop and, and maybe rub a tree and make a scrape there and then they move on again. They're, they're heading off to where they feed or they're going someplace. Um, that scrape just tells you basically where the travel route of this deer is. So it's not it's not a magic formula, but it's a it's a useful signpost for uh, uh, certain hunts. Yeah, it kind of helps you early enough in in the season. It kind of helps you to identify where these travel routes are. Um, I don't I don't believe 
that they come and freshen those scrapes. I don't believe that they that they've got certain scrapes, and, and I, I might be wrong on that, but um, I haven't seen it in my own experience where they'll travel from a distance away to a particular scrape and freshen it, and then go on to another one someplace else. I think what happens is they travel, and as they travel, they encounter scrapes or they make them, um, and then they, you know it's more like uh, by coincidence that the scrape is on their path or the scrape is there because it's on their path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I gotcha. treat it more as a way to identify travel routes. Right. Um, Number four, watch and learn. What are we watching and learning, Bill? This, uh, my thoughts on that one kind of revolve around maybe taking a conservative approach, uh, depending upon how, how well you know an area. Like, let's say, for example, you know, we talked a little bit about moving stands into places during the season. Um, I hate to be super aggressive with my initial setup because if you don't get it right, I mean, to the right tree, um, you can pretty well mess that up. So let's say you're hunting a little half-acre food plot and you got turnips planted in there and you know that the deer are going to be stopping in there in the evening you know, before they head out to the cornfields or whatever. Um, I would have a hard time just plopping myself down right on the main trail you know, going through that food plot because I would be uncomfortable knowing actually what happens there. So I might pick the most conservative possible location that I could set up where I still have some hope of shooting something. But what I'm trying to do is give myself a, a, a starting point that I can fine-tune and with the experience of watching the deer actually interacting in that area, um, then I can figure out, okay, look, if, if I move it to here, I'm going to have 75% of the deer come within bow range, but I'm not going to hardly booger up any of them. Uh, but if I put it here, I might get 90% of them come within bow range, but that's only once, you know, because then I've got all this risk of, of you know, them hitting my ground scent or my airborne scent. You know, you just what you're trying to do is, is manage your impact. Uh, so I always take, when I'm hitting a new spot that I haven't fine-tuned, mm-hmm. I always take a fairly conservative approach and then just let my eyes kind of tell me uh, how to fine-tune that. And, and uh, it, you can do it quicker than what you think. Uh, but it, it, what's interesting is I've got some just totally killer stands. I mean, spots that, I mean, they're as good as you could hope for. But most of them didn't just happen because I looked at an aerial photo and made one scouting pass and picked a tree and stuck the stand in there. Most of them happened over the course of several seasons where, you know, you fine-tune it a little bit each year, and then all of a sudden you hit that kind of magic formula where you're you're not giving away much, you know, from the standpoint of spooking deer, mm-hmm. but you're picking up a high percentage of, of what is it, is coming into that area sure. you're getting them within bow range. Um, and it's a tough formula that doesn't, I mean, you can spend your whole lifetime uh, figuring that part of it out. I guess, to me, that's the whole fascinating chess match of whitetail hunting is, is uh, that fine-tuning uh, mm-hmm. of the tree stands. Number five is call them in. Uh, I think, you know, if there's... 20, 30 million deer hunters or whatever in the country, there's 20 or 30 million different opinions on calling, um, when to call, what kind of calls to use, etc. What has your uh, wealth of experience in the whitetail woods uh, convinced you about when it comes to calling whitetails, Bill? uh, um, You're only going to be able to call in a certain percentage of them. Um, And I've got my own approach to it you know some guys like to call blind and they'll call every 20 minutes or whatever and and you know that's just not that that doesn't make as much sense to me i guess and to each his own i'm not going to say that that's 
not an effective way to do it. Uh, I just don't like to call attention to myself. I'm one of these guys that I don't want a deer coming in looking for me when I don't know he's there. Uh, because I, I move around in the tree some. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to have to be glued with my back to the trunk for eight hours. Um, so I'm actually kind of fidgety, uh, and I rely on my eyes because when the deer are moving, I can pick them up. You know, because I want to see them before they see me. Then I can set my whole strategy based on that. So I don't like to pull them in where they're going to find me in there. And then I'm going to educate that deer, and um, I don't know. And, and I'm sure there are people whose personalities it suits better. Uh, but what I do is I wait until I see the deer, I glass it, I figure out if it's one that I want to shoot, I look at the situation, you know, is he going to get downwind to me, you know, what's going on here, and uh, if I realize he's not going to come in on his own, which I would much prefer, uh, because I don't like when something comes in looking for me, I would much rather have them just casually come through, because uh, it makes everything that we do, you know, in, in the course of shooting them so much easier if they're not in there looking for me. Um so anyway, if I know he's not going to come in on his own, then I'll call to him. And uh, I start out with grunting. I don't, I don't do a lot of, of heavy rattling. And you can tell when they hear you. Um, they'll show some reaction. Uh, a lot of times people say, well, the deer don't react. Probably you're not calling loud enough. Um, you know, they'll, they'll typically show some reaction, you know, and, and uh, they'll stop and lift their head up. And when that happens, I usually give them one more, uh, one more grunt and then just let them decide from there. Uh, because now the crunching of leaves and everything else is done. Now they're focused. They're looking in your direction. Their ears are pointed your way. They're trying to figure out, what did I just hear? Mm-hmm. Is that a grunt? And then you just give them another grunt. And then you then you know right then whether you've got a chance or not. Because if they turn and start walking away from you, just give it up. He's not coming in. Um, but if he turns and starts heading your way, then be quiet. I mean, he basically... You don't have to do much after that. He's either going to tell you, you know, that I'm not coming, or he's going to come. So um, you're so you're basically uh, more or less strictly uh, in your calling are just using some very limited grunts and uh, very little uh, rattling, very little bleeding. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not a heavy caller. Um, like I said, it just doesn't fit my my style of hunting or my personality very well. Um, so I mean, other guys, like I said, I'm, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that's the only way to do it, um, but I like to call the stuff I've seen. Uh, that way, I can I can react to what they're doing. I know there's a deer 150 yards away to the north. When I start calling, I'm not right. going to get surprised by that deer at 40 yards standing behind a bush snorting at me. No, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and uh, I, I can certainly sort of say, as a, as a hunter who does a little bit of blind calling and has probably you know, drawn deer that were close but out of sight in, uh, I probably have gotten busted a, a few times from that. So it's kind of a catch-22, and like you said, it's everybody's kind of got to decide what kind of a game they want to play. But uh, you can win some and lose some for sure doing it the way that I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. You just have to be – see, the thing is, I like to – I like to have my head on a turret. I like to be looking. I'll spend, if I'm 12 hours in the tree, I'm 12 hours like a, you know, like a, a satellite dish, you know, going back and forth and back and forth, you know, picking up anything I can see. Mm-hmm. I want to see that movement. And uh, if I do a blind call, um, I'm going to be doing that anyway. So here I sit up in the tree, you know, turning my head. I might even turn my body and look around the tree, you know, what's coming from that direction. Um, if you got a buck sneaking in, they know where the sound is coming from. Right. I mean, it's it's shocking how well they know. 
I mean, they pin it to the tree. They might be 200 yards away. They know which tree that sound came from. It's it's unbelievable. So now they're coming in, staring at that tree, and there I am up there looking around. Yep. Um, maybe I pick my bow off the hook and do a little test draw or something like that and snort, and he's gone. I'm like, holy cow, I just boogered up you know, my, one of my best stands with one of the best deer in the, on the farm. Sure. Yeah, there's no doubt. Let's jump into number six, hunt bedding areas in the morning. How... how uh... How easy it is it to get uh, get close to a bedding area? I mean, I would think not too easy. You've got to be careful with that, don't you, Bill? Well, getting out of there is, is the tricky part. Um, getting in, usually you can get in pretty good because you can go early enough where you beat the deer in. Um, so the trick is really to set your stand on the downwind edge on the opposite direction that the deer are going to be coming from. And that's pretty easy to sort out, too. They're probably coming from the food. Um, so wherever the nearest food source is, uh, that should dictate that you set up on the opposite direction. So there's only going to be certain winds that you can hunt a bedding area on, and that's a wind that blows from the food to the bed. So then you can be on the downwind edge, which brings you in from the opposite direction, you know, with the wind in your face, and it's all good. Um, so the the trick, though, is how you get out of there. And uh, um, I try to set up near ditches or places where I can climb down the back of the tree and drop right out of sight, um, you know, where... You, know, you can use the tree for cover when you're climbing down, you know, away from the direction where you expect most of the deer to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to hunt a spot where the deer would bed within about 30, 40 yards of, of the tree, and it was an awesome spot. I mean, I, I had to be in that tree. Um, so I used to carry a, one of those wrist rockets, you know, a slingshot, and in uh, a little handful of gravel out of my yard. And what I would do is I'd tweak the nearest one when it was time to climb down, because once they bed, it's really amazing with deer, because once they bed, they've just accepted that the world is fine around them, you know, because they've got four or five of them. They're all bedded together. They're all kind of sleepy-eyed, and they've, they're scanning their surroundings. They're not seeing anything. Um, they, don't, they don't react when you're right there above them hardly. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's a weird deal. They've already accepted that it's... Yeah, they can almost drive you crazy, like you feel pinned down, and you almost wish they'd get up and move so you could get out of there. Right. So what I do is I take a slingshot and shoot the closest one, um, and then it jumps up and runs off. It doesn't know why. It jumps up and runs off, and the other ones don't know why it ran off, but they know they better run. Um, so they run, then you climb down, and you get out of there. And I've done that. Heck, I remember one one time the wind stayed the same for about a week, and I shot the same bunch of does every single morning for a week uh, with that slingshot. <laughs> and uh, they never figured it out. I mean, it was uh, it was just you know a ritual that we had. Every time it was time for me to climb down, I'd shoot one of them, and they'd run off and... <laughs> Sure, and then it was kind the, of funny, but and the, then the trick the, is uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but the trick is to get out. You know, you got to have yeah. some way to get out. And then turn, and then number seven is hunt feeding areas in the evening. So you just turn the whole scenario around 180 degrees, right? Yeah. So basically, you're doing, you're trying to hunt where the deer are coming toward. Um, I don't like to hunt the places where the deer are because it's just too delicate of a situation for getting in. So I like to hunt the places that they're coming toward. Um, and in the evenings, of course, they're heading toward food, um, and that's you got to have an exit strategy again. You know, it's just, <clears throat> that's the unfortunate part about hunting whitetails is, is they are very much patternable type animals where you can't afford to, to blow a certain area and then think it's going to continue to be good. So uh, it can be pretty difficult when the time comes to get out of an afternoon stand that's near a feeding area. Uh, I've got a couple ways that I do it. You know, my favorite way, of course, is to shoot a doe, uh, you know, right at the time when it's you know, climb down or, you know, prior to that, of course, you know, right before legal shooting time, she runs off the field, all the other deer scatter. They don't know what happened. 
you climb down, you go back, you get the vehicle, and you drive in there and get her. Um, you know, it's not it's not a big deal. Uh, you don't want to climb down right on the edge of a food plot and scare the deer off. Right. Um, you have to you have to have some kind of diversion. Uh, the other thing that works really well is to have somebody show up on a four wheeler or, or a vehicle and come in, you know, through a lane where they're accustomed to people coming and and below the field uh, for you. And then you climb down, you get in with them and leave. Right. Um, that's that's the preferred method. Um, and there's a few situations out there where you can set up where the deer have to go past you to get to the food. And then you can, once they've all filtered by, you can drop down and sneak up the other way. Um, that works good too. But it's got to be one of those three. I mean, you've got to find, or really one of those two. You got to have a diversion, uh, you know, so you can get out, or you've got to be at a place where they walk past, mm-hmm. and then they're gone by dark. Right. Number eight is uh, something that you actually devoted an entire feature article to in the in the uh, November issue. Uh, and certainly we can't spend that much time on it, but key on the first hot doze. That kind of ties into uh, the magical time of the season and sort of what you call, what, the best 10 days of the year, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and you can probably even break that down to the best three days of the year. Uh, and everybody thinks of the rut as kind of being this sort of nonstop activity, but it, it doesn't really work like that. It kind of goes in fits and starts. Um, and one of the the first opportunities and maybe the best window is when that when the first does start coming in uh, because the bucks are ready to go and uh, you know they're going to the older deer are going to be on their feet trying to find those first ones at that time they're not going to be early that's what everybody thinks that oh man these old mature bucks are going to be hounding the woods for a week before that first doe comes in it doesn't really work that way they kind of know how, how the game is done um, so they wait and when the first does are in they then they they go find them um, so, and and, and 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 obviously there's a, a lot of theories out there as to what exactly triggers that, whether it be, you know, moon or, or photo period or, or what have you. But regardless of, uh, of all of that, you seem to have found that you can pretty well just mark it down on the calendar and, and you kind of circle November 7th as a magic date for the start of all that, Bill. Yeah, and maybe maybe not quite the start of it, but certainly the peak of that first part of the estrus cycle and it's totally photo period um you know there's some question about whether the moon has a way of fine-tuning the photo period because you know if there's a full moon it makes it you know it seems like there's more daylight and, and that sort of thing and i i don't want to get into all that i guess i got my own thoughts on it we'll leave that for a different day but um it's totally photo period so that means that you're dealing with basically the same days every year um you can slice it any way you want to if it's cold on november 7th you're gonna. You need to be in your best stand. Um, if you're hunting north of the Mason-Dixon line, um, that's you just put it on the calendar. And you know, some guys say the eighth, and some guys say the sixth. But uh, well, what's the just just to you know to, to close out this this uh, item? What's the range? You know, from from November uh, when to when would you say those are the those are the days when I'd absolutely hunt my hottest spots? Third to the tenth. Gotcha. Doesn't get any simpler than that. Let's move on. Number, yeah. <laughs> n- number nine, be aggressive when you can. How do we reconcile uh, the desire to be aggressive with the need to be stealthy? Well, the, usually it's urgency or the, the, the I mean, it, 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 I'm sure it's opportunity as well. There might be some spots where you can be aggressive, uh, you know, hunt right on the best sign. That's what I mean by be aggressive is, you know, there are certain places that are super high activity and, 
if you go in there just kind of casually without giving a lot of thought to it, you're just going to educate a lot of deer. You know, that's the definition of high activity. It's also high risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to kind of manage that. You know, do you go to your high-risk stands, which are potentially high-reward stands? Do you do that on the first day of the hunt, or do you wait until you get closer to the end? Uh, maybe you've got a week of vacation and and you're just starting to realize that you know what I mean I've been I've been conservative I've been hunting great stands but they're not my best stands because you know my best stands are so hard to hunt without spooking something you know without educating the deer um, that's when you start being more aggressive uh, when you've got nothing to lose really uh, and then there are set situations that really set up not very many but there are situations that set up where you can hunt uh, those really high activity areas without educating deer uh, and, and you just have to we could spend an hour talking about that but uh, just just give me one just give the the listeners one example of you know when is a time then you can afford to basically plop your stand right down on the edge of the you know the deepest rutted trail on your property only when only when you can get to and from it uh, without being seen heard or smelled and uh, when you can hunt it without the wind blowing to a direction where there's going to be deer so if you want to pick an example, let's just say that there's a, a, an intersection where a ditch comes into a creek, and, and there's a crossing on the creek, you know, a heavy crossing between two bedding areas or between a bedding and a feeding area or something that really gives the deer a point A and a point B. Um, you can sneak, let's say you can sneak in the ditch, you know, you've gone in there ahead of time and cleaned it all out with your chainsaw, and now you just stay low and you creep right in there. Um, you pop up into that tree, which is always downwind, of of the heavy crossing on the creek because the wind blows out into a CRP field or something like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can, there are situations, not very many, uh, where you can absolutely hunt your best spots often. Um, But typically what happens is they're down in bottoms. uh, They're in lower areas because they cross from one ridge to another and the wind swirls in those spots. And it's just really difficult to get in there because you got to walk past deer to get to it. And, that's that's the normal situation that we run into with the the best sign. It seems like it occurs in the places that are the hardest to hunt. Right, right. Okay, number ten, the last piece of uh, Winky's whitetail wisdom for this episode: mornings versus evenings versus all day. I, again, this is another topic where surely there are many opinions out there. I can say uh, personally, it seems to me that uh, you know. Um, the vast majority of all the deer that I've ever tagged have actually happened by 9 a.m. It's it's almost so predictable that uh, after 9 o'clock I, I, I almost say, uh, well, it's uh, time to come back tomorrow. And, of course, I have the luxury, uh, as you do perhaps, of hunting more days per season than most guys. But uh, I'm, I'm a avowed morning guy. Uh, where does Bill Winkie stand on this issue? And when is it worth our while to spend eight or ten hours in the tree well i'm definitely a morning guy too um because it you know i just had more success that way but if you want to think from a a logical standpoint typically in the morning you've had a cool night um so the temperatures are climbing which means you're starting with a lower temperature and, and deer are wearing their heavy winter coat by the rut typically um you know if you bundled up in all the clothes that you had and ran around in the woods you know, if it's hot out, you're going to quit running pretty quick. Um, so I like the cooler temperatures that come in the morning. And then also what you're doing is you're moving, the, the deer are moving from areas of vulnerability to areas of security. So as long as you're in those areas of security, you're going to be in a place where they feel comfortable and they're going to be on their feet longer. 
Um, you know, couple that with the fact that you've got these cooler temperatures that, that's more bearable to them. Um, and to me, just from a logical standpoint, it means they're going to be on their feet longer in the morning than they are in the evening. Uh, because in the evening, then, it's warmer. You know, let's say it's a 70-degree day in, in early November. Maybe it drops down to 45 at night. But, you know, it doesn't drop from 70 to 45 in 20 minutes. You know, so it's going to be a while before it's really cool out. Uh, so you've got really less time during the day when it's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, they're moving toward an area where they feel vulnerable, which is, you know, the moving from the bedding areas and the thicker cover to the more open areas where typically the does are going to feed. Um, so I just feel like, you know, in most areas of the country where their deer are getting regular hunting pressure, they're going to feel more comfortable back in someplace in the mornings, kind of hanging out on some little brushy ridge on their feet uh, than they would moving out into something that's right. more open. Right, um, they tend to be a little cautious as they're approaching those open areas and, and moving very gingerly and checking things out as they're, yep. you know, the the big buck is never the first one to step out in the middle of the field, right? <laughs> oh, exactly, yeah, and, and uh, so that's where you definitely want to, uh, I, mean, I mean, you just don't want to miss the mornings or the evenings, obviously, I mean, you want to be out there every minute that you can, but if I have to pick... Um, you know, there's certain stands, obviously, I love to hunt. There might be an afternoon stand, so I'm going to be there for an afternoon. But if I had, in general, to say you can only hunt mornings or you can only hunt evenings, I'd probably only hunt mornings um, you know, if um, I had to pick. Well, that's great. You know, Bill, we've covered an awful lot today, and I surely appreciate you spending the time with us. Before we let you go, I wanted to give folks an opportunity to maybe follow you and, and your crew through the deer season this fall um we love having you as a part of the peterson's bow hunting team and the things you do for us and you also have um, a website of your own called midwest whitetail and uh you're actually putting together some online uh programs where people can see uh bill winky in the tree and uh stacking up some some deer is that right yeah um it's we call it a semi-live is the is the format of where we try to produce the shows as quick after the action occurs as what we can. And we've just started the season, you know, going over some of the bucks that are, you know, quote-unquote on the hit list, uh, deer that we're going to be able to pattern or, or hopefully pattern and, and track through the season and, and hunt, uh, you know, put the strategies together on these deer. Uh, so basically, uh, it's just sort of like a, a journal of the season, a video journal of the season that's updated uh, in, in, in a kind of a... a formalized style I mean, right it's, it's, a, it's a regular show and and how often do you put episodes up online we're doing it weekly right now and then uh it's it's going to once the action really starts heating up we're up there twice a week uh with with a new show they're actually shows they're not like just some little observation you know here's two minutes of bill talking about you know what's going on it's actually we're actually going through the process and you can track with us and we set it up this year too where we've got uh, multiple shows. We've got shows for different parts of the country. Last year we just had one, you know, multi-episode show, and this year we've got ten. You know, like for example, where you're at in Pennsylvania, we actually have uh, an entire show dedicated to the Northeast. You know, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New York are the are the teams that we've got on that on that show for this year. We've got a show for Ohio, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, etc. Uh, we've got ten different ones. So not only is it semi-live, but you can follow it right in your own backyard, uh, which makes it even more practical to people who are trying to figure out what's going on, and maybe they can 
learn a little bit from some of the people who are successful in their area. Well, it sounds neat, Bill. And, and what is the, um, the URL where people can find that on, online? It's uh, MidwestWhitetail.com. So, uh, yeah, check it out. I, mean, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks again, Bill. It was great talking to you. Uh, I always enjoy when we get a chance to chat, and, and hopefully the conversation that we shared with uh, the listeners today will give them a little whitetail wisdom that they can use to punch a tag this fall. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I, I appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk with you soon. All right, man. Take care. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio with editor Christian Burr. For more information on this and other topics, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.